<clears throat> I told you that title was a little bit of a mouthful. Uh, but what we're going to dive into today, I really do believe, is the unsettling solution for just about everything. You know, I, I have this, this kind of a novel idea. It's a little bit of a naive idea. I'm sure uh, from where you're sitting, you'll think it's a little bit of a naive idea. But as a, a minister, as somebody who's dedicated his life to following Jesus, I, I just I have this thought that I keep coming back to it, and it's it's a little bit hard for me to to understand. And and it's this: I don't know why everybody wouldn't want Christianity to be true. Now, let me say this. I, I, I understand that there's why some people don't believe it's true. I understand there's, there's some conflict maybe in, in what we believe and, or, or maybe what we know. And maybe there's this, these roadblocks. There's these intellectual um, um, stones, if you would, in the way. And you're just, you can't see past that. I, I get that. But I don't know why people wouldn't want to believe it's true. And I'm, I don't mean the, Christian, the version of Christianity maybe that you grew up with or that I grew up with. Maybe the version of Christianity that, that we've kind of created through the last uh, few thousand years. But, but the original kind of authentic version that Jesus brought to the planet, that he introduced to earth, that version, that irresistible version of Christianity, that version that, that, that turned an empire around, that version that, that changed the world for thousands of years, I don't understand why people don't want to believe that that's true, that, that, that the goodness and the, the, the irresistibility, the attractiveness of it, it just doesn't make sense. I do understand that, that there's a difference between I don't believe it's true. I know there are certain things that stand in our way, and maybe you're here, and, and that's you. You've come, and you just, you just don't believe it yet. You're not sure, and, and you're kind of exploring. Is there more to this Jesus thing? Is it, is it real? Is it powerful? Is it true? I get that there are some things that stand in the way. Maybe you haven't read something, or you haven't, you haven't heard a story, or you haven't d- done all the research yet, and, and eventually you will, and, and then it'll become, it'll become true. But for, for whatever reason, and maybe I don't understand it, you might not believe it's true. I know that there's a difference between I don't believe it's true, and I don't want it to be true. And, and that's where I struggle, the I don't want it to be true. Why? Why wouldn't we want what Jesus brought to earth to be true? It doesn't... It just doesn't make any sense to me because what he brought was so incredibly attractive and it just, it just changed the world. Blaise Pascal was this incredible mathematician and philosopher. I'm sure you heard of him. You may not know he was a, homeschooled, uh, a homeschooler. So for those of you who are, are, have been homeschooled or are homeschooling, uh, this is a nod to you. He's this brilliant man and, and he made uh, this statement which I found so interesting. He said, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, and for those of you who are parenting middle schoolers and high schoolers, listen, but on the basis of what they find attractive. This might be what you're going through. We believe this not on the basis of proof or the evidence of proof, but on what we find attractive. And then what do we do? We search for evidence to substantiate what we believe. It looks attractive, so I want it to be true. So I'm going to find something to point in the direction that it's true. That's really what he's saying. What he's not saying is that everything that's attractive is true. He's not saying that at all, and I'm not trying to say that. I'm actually not saying that Christianity is true because it's so attractive. I'm, I'm not saying that either. What I am saying is that there's this, this little bit of conflict that Christianity was so overwhelmingly attractive, and it had this ability to completely change the world. I mean, the, the Roman Empire adopted it as, as their, their kind of philosophy, their, their worldview, their religion, and it changed an empire. And for some of you, it's changed your lives. It, it was so incredibly attractive. And one of the things that made it so attractive is this, this idea, this word that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. It's, it's a word that most of us know, that whether you've been in church or maybe you've never been in church before, you probably have heard this word before. And it, it's, it's a word that we probably have an idea of, but maybe don't understand in its fullness. And that's what we, were, what we kind of want to address this morning. That word is simply this. It's, it's grace. That's what set Christianity apart. 
That's what made Christianity different than every other worldview, world philosophy, world religion, was this word here. It's grace. Grace is the thing that we crave most when our guilt is exposed, isn't it? You know you're guilty of something. What do you want? You want a little grace. You come home late. You're in high school. Your parents have found something in your room, and it's sitting on the table. You know, you've been there. And you think of every excuse in the world, how, how can I convince them it's not mine? It's not, it was my sister's. And no, we found it in your room. We found it in your bed. Right? There, there, there's no excuses. There's no loopholes. You're caught. You're busted. It's like, it, it's there. It, it's out there. And now you're just wondering, what, what are they going to do? They have the power to take anything away or to punish. It's, it's what's going to come. And, and in your heart, what are you longing for? A little bit of grace. It, it's like when you, you come home late and your wife's been waiting up for you. Or, or you come home late and your husband's waiting up for you. Or, or maybe worse, you're coming home late and your kids are waiting up for you. And there's no loopholes. There's no excuses. You know you've been caught. You want some grace. You see, when we do something wrong and our, our guilt is exposed and our shame is exposed, we want a little grace. Grace is what we crave when, when our guilt is exposed. But, but also, what's interesting, <clears throat> well, it's what we're hesitant to extend when we're confronted with the guilt of others, especially when they're guilty of hurting us or maybe worse, hurting those we love. It's the last thing we want to see extended. You see, grace, when it's extended to us, is incredibly refreshing. But grace, when, when it's required of us to extend to someone else, it's incredibly disturbing, isn't it? But really, when it comes down to it, grace really is the unsettling solution for just about everything. It, it's it's the, the thing that, that we can experience only in the midst of relationships, when there's kind of a, a, a flaw, if you will, or, or a, a, our, our relations are kind of skewed or, or they're hurt or they're fractured, and grace is extended. You see, if you grew up in church, my guess is you have some idea of what grace is. If you didn't, you may have no idea or maybe not have ever even thought through what a definition of grace would look like. But here's the definition we're going to use, and this is going to be our definition through the rest of the series. Grace is this. It's undeserved, unearned, and unearnable favor. It's unearnable. It, it, it's like, it, you know, it, it, you can't uh, kind of earn grace. It, it would be like trying to plan your own surprise party, right? It just doesn't work, right? Planning the surprise party, it voids the surprise, doesn't it? When you plan your surprise party, it's like the, the surprise is gone. It's the exact same way with grace. The minute you think you, you deserve grace, you're, that deserving, the deserving voids grace. You, you don't deserve it. You can't earn it. But the minute you think you do, you don't get it. See, the truth is, and this is, this is what makes grace so hard for us to understand and so unsettling for some of us, <clears throat> is that we can't recognize or receive grace for what it is until we're convinced we don't deserve it. And once we're convinced that we don't deserve this amazing thing, then we get it. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's unsettling. It's confusing. There's this, it's almost like there's this conflict with it. Grace is, is the one thing that can restore relationships. It's the one thing that we only ever experience in relationships, where somebody, you know, there's kind of two sides of a ledger and somebody's doing good and somebody's doing bad and somebody kind of meets, maybe the person who's done good and the person who's done bad, the person who's done good kind of comes down and meets the person halfway and, and tries to resolve the relationship. That's what grace is. This is why God had to show up. This is why God came and had to show up for us, for us to see and experience grace because the, the, the ledger was skewed. We had make mistakes, and, and God was holy, and, and there was no way for us to get there. So God had to show up. The truth is that, that if God never showed up, that we would have never known the grace of God without the presence of God. This is why Christmas happened. This is why Jesus came. 
so that we could experience grace. And as difficult as it might be for us to kind of wrap our mind around, as difficult as it might be for us maybe to sometimes extend to people who, who we feel aren't deserving of it, it's the very thing that's extended to us when we don't feel like we deserve it. This takes us to the Gospel of John. You know John, he was one of the apostles of Jesus. There's the four guys who wrote the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's the fourth. John also wrote other books in the New Testament and so creatively called them 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Um, this is that guy. John is, is the beloved. He's, he's a dear friend of Jesus, and he knows the heart of Jesus, and he's, he's witnessed Jesus' ministry on earth. John lives to be an old man, and, and all of his friends now have died. You know, he outlived Andrew. He outlived James, the brother of Jesus. He outlived Peter. He's, he, he's kind of looking back on his life with this, this kind of crystal clear vision that only wisdom and experience and age can offer. And at this point in his life, living so many years, it's like young people have come to him and said, John, we want to know your story. We want to know what it was like to know Jesus and to walk with Jesus and, and to experience Jesus. So John begins to think, how can, how can I tell you? How can I describe to you the undescribable? How, how, can I, how can I make these events seem so believable when I know how unbelievable they are? Where do I even start with this? And John begins to, to kind of write his story, or really probably better tell his story. There's an argument that, that the reason the Gospels can't be trusted is because the Gospel writers were these illiterate fishermen who, had, who would have no experience in writing in these languages. And the truth is, that's right. They probably didn't write it. They probably dictated it to a scribe who knew multiple languages. So John, imagine, if you will, sitting at the end of his life as an old man, dictating this story of Jesus and where he starts. How, how do I begin? How, how, do I, how do I even begin to tell you of the goodness and the greatness of what it was to know Jesus. He starts this way. He starts his book by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And then he jumps a few verses later to saying this. He said, I don't know how else to explain it except to say it this way. The word became flesh, and it made his dwelling among us. I, guys, I, I don't know how else, how else to describe it. I know that sounds weird. I know, I know it sounds impossible and unimaginable, but the word that was God, the word that was with God, somehow it, it put on like the form of a human in the name of Jesus, and it came and it dwelt among us. It was amazing. I wish you could have seen. I wish you could have experienced what I've experienced. And then he said this. He said, we have seen. And when he says we, he's not saying like, like we, me, and we, you, or even we, we. Wow, you guys are slow. They got that like right away for a service. <clears throat> he's not even saying like we as today. He's saying we, like literal we, like, like me and, and you know, James and Matthew and, and Luke and Peter, all the apostles, the hundreds of people that follow Jesus. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. This isn't a story I'm passing down to you that I heard from my parents. This isn't something that somebody else told me, that somebody else told me, that somebody else saw. This is what I have seen. I was with him. I watched him do what the things that nobody else could do. I, I heard him say the things that nobody else would ever say. I saw the glory of the one and the only son, the one who came from the Father. And then he makes this incredible statement that, that's going to be kind of our thesis, our, our thought going forward, who was full of grace and full of truth. <coughs> now, don't misunderstand John's words. He's not saying he was the balance of grace and the balance of truth. That, that's us, right? That's where we live. We try to find the balance of, of being truthful and graceful. We try, we try to find a mix. How, how can I be honest and, and be loving? How, how can I tell the truth and still be caring? And, and we, 
we balance this, this kind of mix of, of, of grace and truth all the time. And John said, no, 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 not Jesus. Jesus was completely different. Jesus was full grace. He was all grace and he was all truth all the time. He would meet people who sinned and he wouldn't say, oh, it's so, it's so nice and I love you. He would say, no, you're a sinner. And then he would go and he would die for their sin. He would say, you've made mistakes. You've sinned and you can't pay it back. I'll go pay it for you. It was, it was all grace and it was all truth all the time. That was Jesus. He was all grace and he was all truth all the time. He was never afraid to tell sin what sin was. He, he never watered down the truth and he never kind of put the brakes in on grace. It, it, it is what it is. I am all grace and I am all truth all the time. That's how Jesus was. He was amazing. He, he was this, this incredible being, all grace and all truth all the time. And John would later, he would kind of write these words down that so many of us would struggle with. He would say, he would say but, but you see, Jesus, he's, he, he, he's like more than that. He's, he wrote the words down that, that nobody else would have ever written before him. He was the first one to kind of put this phrase together. And it's something that we all think of. When we think of God, we kind of come back to this idea, this definition. He, he said, it's almost as if God is love. And we hear that and we just kind of read through it. But, but John, like penning these words or saying these words, looking back over his life, I, I, having seen all of his friends executed and, and, and crucified and, and him, the last one left, he could still look back over all of his life, all of his experiences and said, no, but God is love because love is all grace and all truth all the time. And, and if you don't believe me, remember being a parent. All of you parents, you know this. Right? This is the struggle as parents. How do I show my kids grace all the time and, sh and, and still teach them the truth? You see, that's what love is. Love is showing all grace and all truth all the time. And we struggle to find that. We, we think we got to find a balance. And you said, no, 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 there's no balance. It's all of it, all the time. And then he said, that's me. I embody that. I am that to, the, to, the, to earth. I am all grace and I am all truth. All the time. I'm love. John witnessed these things. John would witness these incredible situations where Jesus would just extend grace where no grace was offered. One of these stories takes place at the beginning of, of Jesus' ministry. He's just kind of gathering his troops, if you will. He's got some followers. There's a few hundred people that are kind of following him around. He's just beginning to recruit his, his apostles. In one interaction, he comes to kind of this intersection where he meets a tax, tax collector. And after they're done with their business, he, he then invites the tax collector to follow him. He says, hey, hey Levi, Matthew, come and follow me. And, and in this culture, in this society, this was like, you, you have to imagine, we just kind of like read through this because we're all used to tax collectors, right? Everybody pays their taxes. If you don't, good luck come April, right? Everybody has to deal with this. In this culture, there were, there were levels in society, right? There was like the Pharisees, they were the holy of the holies, and there was the Jews, they were like God's chosen. Then there was like the sinners, they were the people who didn't follow God at all. And then underneath the sinners, there's the tax gatherers. They're worse than the sinners. They, they rob and they steal from their own people. They are like the, the, the scum of society. That even if you were a sinner, at least you weren't a tax collector. And Jesus is inviting a tax collector to follow him? There was just this shock in his audience. I imagine his apostles were kind of like grumbling among themselves, like, no, no don't ask him. We're going to lose the crowd. Why, would, why should he follow you? Matthew, come follow me. The text tells us that Matthew gets up and says, okay, 
And it doesn't tell us that Matthew stopped tax gathering. We just kind of assume that, that, that he did, but it probably went more like this. I'm going to get up and my assistant take my place. You keep gathering taxes for me. Okay, Jesus, I'll follow you. Where do you want to go? And then Jesus makes an uncomfortable situation even more uncomfortable, even more unsettling. He says, Matthew, I want to go to your house. To which I'm sure there was kind of like audible gasps among the crowd. Like, how could he do that? His disciples, especially Peter, because Peter's like that loud. He's kind of viewed as the leader of the disciples. He's the outspoken one. I just imagine he was like in a fit of rage. (laughs) Forget it, Jesus. I'm not going to his house. To which Jesus would turn around and say, yes, you are, because you're following me, and I'm going there. All right, Jesus, come on, we'll go to my house. So they go to Matthew's house, and Matthew's is, this, again, this tax gathering. What are we going to do while we're here? Jesus says, invite some friends over. And Matthew's like, why? Why would you want to meet my friends? Everyone thinks I'm the worst. All of my friends are the worst. This is what we do. We gather taxes. We rob from the people we should be loving. Like, my friends aren't going to like you. You're not going to like them. You're nothing like each other. Why would you even act? Like, why? Why would you want to meet my friends? Invite your friends over. So Matthew does. I imagine the disciples are just upset and grieved over this, and this, this party begins to happen in Matthew's house. And, and you know, it's like, this is like the, 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 the scum of society. They're just partying and drinking too much, and things are getting a little uncomfortable because, it, it, you know, <clears throat> they're drinking and, and they're, they're partying, and, and in there is the holy of holies, right? Full love, full grace, full truth all the time right there in his presence. It's uncomfortable. It would be like you ha- like going to your holiday party this week or next week and you know everyone's having a good time and you're just beginning to drink a little too much. You know when you hit that point? You're just drinking a little too much and then in I come. <clears throat> and all of you are laughing. They laugh first service too. I don't know why. Right? And, and things get a little uncomfortable. Like, ugh. I like them on Sunday, but I don't, want, I don't like them on Wednesday or you know, Friday or Saturday. And everyone kind of leans back and, you know, when's he leaving? When are they going? How soon? Hopefully soon. Eventually Tanya and I leave and then you guys get back to the real party. It's like that to like the 10th degree. They're all partying. They're all drinking a little too much. It's, you know, these are the worst people in society. You can imagine the kind of stuff that they're doing. And in there sits the holy of holies, the son of God. The Pharisees, they're outside the party. They weren't invited to go in. And the truth is they wouldn't have gone even if they were invited because they're, they're the, the, holy, the holy people, right? They, didn't, they physically didn't touch me. They literally walked around with like their hands in their garments so they wouldn't touch anything that's dirty. They would step around messes, literally so they wouldn't hurt themselves or make themselves dirty. This is that, those kinds of people. The Pharisees sitting on the outside of the party looking in on Jesus and his disciples, they get a little upset. Why is the guy who's claiming to be the Messiah and the Son of God, why is he eating with people like them? He should be eating with us. Literally, it says this in Matthew's Gospel. When the Pharisees saw what Jesus was doing, they asked his disciples. And we have to assume at this point, they kind of sent a message into the disciples because they weren't going into the house. Hey, hey, guys, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Shouldn't he be out here eating with us? Like We're, we're the holy people. We're the truth people. They were literally the truth keepers. That's how they were viewed, the keepers of the truth. He should be out here with us. Why is he in there with them? So I imagine the disciples hear the message, and then they go over to Jesus, and it was probably Peter because he was always, you know, the loud mouth of the group. I'm sure he says it loud enough so it's not just Jesus heard, but other people can hear. Hey, Jesus, you know those truth keepers, the smartest guys in the room, those people? They're outside. They want to know, why are you in here eating with all these sinners? <clears throat> and then on hearing this, Jesus responds. I'm sure he says it. You know, there's a, now a grumbling in the crowd. Who are you calling a sinner? Jesus responds on hearing this. He says this. 
Don't call Matthew and his friends sinners. That might hurt their feelings. And then they might raise your taxes. <laughs> of course, that's not what Jesus says. You see, that wasn't just an, an all-grace moment. It was an all-grace and all-truth moment. Jesus actually said this. I'm hearing this. He said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. Now, Matthew's standing right there. Matthew hears Jesus' words, and I imagine he's got to ask, seriously? You showed up and asked me to follow you. I didn't ask for this. You're a guest in my house, and you're going to call me sick. And Jesus goes, yeah. Like, dude, you're stealing from your own people. It's pretty sick. You asked me to be here. You asked me to invite all my friends, and, <coughs> and now you're going to offend us and call us sinners and say that we're sick? Well, yeah. Like, what you're doing is sick, but it doesn't exclude you. I still want you to follow me. I still want you to be a part of what I'm doing. Nobody's ever, ever done anything like this. Nobody's ever heard anything like this. There's now a rumbling. There's this, this unsettling feeling in a crowd. Who is this guy? To have the nerve and, and, and the care at the same time. Jesus then looks at his disciples and says, hey, go ask the smartest guys in the room. Go ask the people who think they're the best and they're the smartest. Go ask them this. He says, go ask them what it means. Go, he says this, go and learn what, what this means, rather. Go and learn. Like, you think you're smart, but you're not as smart as you think. You think you're the smartest people in the room, but you don't know that I know more than you know. This is an immediate offense to the Pharisees. He says, go ask them to go and learn what this means. And then he quotes, he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from their scriptures, their old covenant to them. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous but to call sinners. To which the Pharisees have no response. And in that moment, in that unsettling moment, Jesus offers all grace and all truth. But here's the thing. This wouldn't be the last time. This would be the thing that Jesus does throughout his entire ministry that just, it shifts focus and it makes people uncomfortable. Really, I think it's the thing that kind of pushed the, the, these people, these Pharisees, these all truth people, to demand his crucifixion and his death. Later on in his life, Jesus is ministering and he, he chooses to go to the temple. And the temple is this, this, amazing, this amazing place in, in Jerusalem. It's like their, their pinnacle, their pride, their, everything that re represents their society is this temple. It, it is, I, I can't even describe to you the emotion uh, of what the, these first century Jews would have, would have felt when it came to the temple. Jesus is standing on the southern steps and, and you know, right next to him is, is the Holy of Holies where the word of God is. And then over there is the altar where they're, they're sacrificing animals to God. I mean, this, is, this was like the last stronghold. When, when Rome invaded Jerusalem and took over the city, this is where all the Jews backed up to. Like, you can have our city. You can have our homes. You can have our, our families. But you will not take the temple. This is how much emotion they had around this place. And Jesus is there and he's ministering one day. And then the Pharisees show up. And you probably have heard this story. They show up and they drag this woman out and they throw them at the feet of Jesus. And they say, Jesus, this woman, she was caught in the act of adultery. She, here she is. She was caught. And, and, and the word, you know, the word that's sitting over there, the word that, that you say, you're the son of the guy, our father, who gave us this word, that word, it demands her execution. She should be stoned, Jesus. What do you say? I imagine at this, the Pharisees had had this woman and just held onto her and waited 
We're not going to bring her to Jesus right now. We're going to wait. Let's wait till he gets to the temple. No, better yet, let's wait till he gets right outside the Holy of Holies. And then let's see what he does. Jesus, her acts demand execution. What do you say? Jesus, knowing the hearts of man, Jesus calling their bluff, says, okay, go ahead, stone her. Imagine what this woman is feeling. There's no mercy. There's no grace. There's no questions. There's no, what brought you here? What's your background? How did you get here? None of that. She's like, I imagine on the inside, crying out. She knows what awaits her. She knows imminent death is staring her in the face. Would somebody just show me some grace? And the one man who could give it to her says, go ahead, stone her. Oh, yeah, yeah. Before you do, by the way, he says, before you stone her, let, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. And then he, he kneels down in the sand and he begins to write something with his finger. And, and no one's really sure what, they say, what, what he says. I mean, you should really, you should do some research and read what Bible scholars believe. It, it, it's amazing what he could have written. I tend to think it's like, you know, it takes one to know one. Maybe it was more like, like some people, scholars believe he started to write the sins of all the men who were present. But as he writes the sin, no one casts a stone. The scripture actually says from oldest to youngest, they begin to leave. And I imagine it was the older guys who kind of knew where this was headed. You know, they have the wisdom and the experience to know. They're, they're caught, they're busted, no loopholes. Like, what do we do? They begin to leave, and these young guys pick up stones, and they're ready to throw, and the old guys are kind of grabbing them by the ear and walking off like, no, 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 wait. Guys, it's not going to go well. I know how this is going to turn out. Don't do it. You're falling right into his trap. Oldest by youngest, they all leave. And this woman who was condemned to die is kneeling before Jesus, heartbroken, I imagine, emotions a wreck, weeping, looking at Jesus like, how did this happen? And what does Jesus do? He doesn't kneel down and pat her on the back and say, it's okay. I know how you got here. I know what your dad did. It's okay. He looks at this broken woman and he says, now leave your life of sin. It was all grace and all truth. I'm not going to condemn you. You're, you're guilty. You deserve punishment. But I'm not going to condemn you. Leave your life of sin. I'll provide the grace. Just don't go back to the thing that got you here. And as if that wasn't an unsettling enough situation to experience grace. Kind of the pinnacle of this unsettling, this uncomfortable moments with Jesus and grace happens at the end of his life. At the end of his life, as we know, Jesus was condemned to die. Right? To carry his, his own instrument of death to a hill that he would be pinned to and he would be hung there until he died. At the end of his life, he, he, he's facing imminent death. And he, he, just, he, he has this moment that is, in my mind, it, it is so hard to wrestle with and to understand. This is the moment that puts amazing and amazing grace. He's condemned to die. And, and Luke, Luke tells us that two other men, both criminals, <clears throat> two other men were both also led with him to be executed. Two men who were guilty of crimes. Two men who deserved what was coming. And in between was Jesus, a man who was all grace and all truth in human form. And we couldn't handle it. So we killed him. When they came to the place, as he dragged his cross, when they came to the place called the skull or Golgotha, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other one on his left. And as he hung there between two men, clearly who deserved to die, 
The people stood there. They, they, they did something that to me is just so detestable and it's so unbelievable. But I think these details are included so that we know how true it is. Because I think this is exactly what we tend to do. When we see someone broken, we think, well, they must have deserved it. When we see somebody who did something wrong, well, clearly they deserved it. The people stood watching this. The rulers even sneered at him and they said, he saved others. Let, it, let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the chosen one. To look in the face of death of a man hung for crimes that he didn't commit and to laugh and poke fun and to mock that as if that wasn't bad enough. In the midst of all this excruciating pain, this embarrassment, this punishment, the criminal to the left takes all of his hate and all of his anger and, 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 and all of his, his, his vile emotions and he begins to spew them on Jesus. He's taking them with him. He's not taking them with him to the grave. He's going to just let it all out on Jesus. And he begins to hurl insult and insult at Jesus. But the other criminal, the one on the other side of Jesus, he begins to rebuke him. He rebukes the other man. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence as me and as this man? And then he says this. I, I love this. There's so much honesty and vulnerability in this. We are punished justly for what we are getting what our deeds deserved. We clearly deserve to die. We deserve this, this embarrassment. We deserve this shame. We deserve the pain. But this man, the guy that we've only heard of, the guy that we've seen from a distance, the guy who's only done good and healed people and restored people, this guy, he has done nothing wrong. And then I imagine in a moment of desperation, he's hung on a cross. He's ready to die. He's minutes away from his death. He looks at Jesus and he pleads for something that he never received in his own life, that, that he never offered anybody else in his own life. He has nothing to offer. There's no negotiating. There's no bargaining. It's like, Jesus, I'm about to die in five minutes. He says this, Jesus, I know you're something different. And I know you're going to someplace different. Would you remember me when you come to your kingdom? To which I, I imagine the crowd's listening. It's like, why? Why would you even ask? You, you, have, you have no chips to bargain with. There's no restitution. There's no forgiveness to be offered. There's no way to make things right. You're hanging on a cross till you die. In, in maybe 10, 30 minutes, you're going to be dead. What do you have to offer Jesus? If it really is the Messiah, how can you make anything right? Why should he even forgive you? This is just a foolish, ignorant question. But Jesus responds. He answers him. Not the way I think he should answer him, by the way. He says, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me. And I imagine when he's saying this, this whole conversation is happening in broken words and in broken phrases because they're hanging on a cross. And it takes every ounce of energy and nerve to lift your body up, to take a breath, to exhale some words, and drop back down. And lift your body up again. There is excruciating pain. It, it is torture and it is punishment to even take a breath, let alone speak. These men are speaking in broken phrases. And Jesus, I don't, I don't even know why he would muster the strength to go through the pain, to even say some more. But he musters enough strength and he says, truly I tell you, today I, I, you will be with me. To which the guy on the cross is probably saying, yeah, I'm with you. I'm here. We're dying. And Jesus would shake his head, no. Get enough strength to pull himself up once again. He says, you'll be with me in paradise. See, and I see that and I think, that's not fair. 
This guy is going to get the same reward as Stephen who would live his life for Jesus and be stoned to death as a martyr for his faith in him? This guy's going to get the same reward as Peter and as James and as John who followed Jesus for three and a half years, who lived the good life, who honored him. He's going to get the same reward? That's not fair. To which Jesus would reply, you're right. Because grace is not fair. It's not fair. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. I offer it freely to everyone. And, and right in here, like, like, this is the rub, isn't it? This is the tension. This is the thing we don't like. This is the thing that makes us uncomfortable. It makes, us, it, makes it really, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes a little bit angry. Why are they forgiven? Why are they shown grace? They don't deserve it. I do. Really, it, it kind of makes us wonder. Jim, these are, these are good stories, and you know, it gets a little emotional. But... but does this just mean that Jesus doesn't care at all about justice and consequences? You said, no, 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 see, you've missed it. Jesus knew better than anyone about justice and consequences. Jesus knew that God's justice was so heavy weighing on you that it was crushing humanity. Jesus knew that, that the consequences of what would be required of him would crush him. He said, but I'm willing to do that for you. You see, if, if I don't do something, the justice that comes because of your sin, the consequences that follow your sin, will crush you. So I will come, and I'll do something for you. You see, Jesus knew, kind of what we all know, especially if we've lived any period of a life at all, is that every sin, every sin has a gotcha, Right? In the church world, we say it this way, that, that the wages of sin is death. That every time we sin, we experience a little bit more of death, whether it's in our relationships or in our personal life, in our health, in our wellness, whatever it might be. Every sin has a gotcha. Every sin has a consequence. Every sin has a gotcha. But the reason we celebrate at Christmas, the reason we celebrate so big at Christmas, a journey, is because Jesus said, because every sin has a gotcha, I'm going to come and get you. I'm going to do what you can't do. I'm going to pay what you can't pay for. I'm going to extend grace. And, and that's the struggle for us. That's what makes grace so unsettling. Is that we didn't deserve it, we didn't earn it, and we can't earn it. But Jesus said, I see the, I see the justice and I see the consequences, and I'm willing to do for you what nobody else can. One of my, my favorite verses, and we'll close with this. This is found in Luke 16 and 16. Jesus is explaining to, to his followers the difference be between the old and the new covenant. And, and he says this. <clears throat> he says, the law and the prophets, right? This is the old covenant. This is the, the, their scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. He said, the law and the prophets were preached pro and they were proclaimed until John. And he's not talking about John the gospel writer. He's talking about John the Baptist, right? The guy who baptized Jesus. He said, up until that point where I kind of stepped on the scene and John baptized me and, you know, that dub appeared and all these crazy things happened. Up until that point in history, up until that point, John was proclaiming my coming. Up until then, the law and the prophets were proclaimed. The old way was proclaimed. The old covenant was still talked about. But after I came on the scene, after I stepped out in, in human form as an adult on this earth, at that point, everything changed. 
He says, since then, since that time that I came on the scene, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. And everyone has. Because it's so incredibly irresistible. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Who wouldn't want to have that kind of grace offered to them where they don't deserve and they can't earn and there's nothing they can do to be in better favor to receive it? Who wouldn't want that kind of thing to be true? He said, it's changed the world. Since I've come, it has changed the world. And time and time and time again, it has changed the world. And what made the difference? It was this man. It was Jesus the embodiment of love, the embodiment of all truth and all grace. And that's our word, grace. It was extending an invitation to people who didn't feel like they deserved it, to people who hadn't stepped out, out of their, their life of sin. He offered the invitation. It's the same invitation he offers you and I. That's what grace is. It's an invitation, come and follow me. But Jesus, have you seen what I'm, what I'm doing? Do you see what my life is? Have you forgotten what I've done? He said, no, 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 it's even better than that. I haven't forgotten what you've done. I know exactly what you've done. But I promise you, if you follow me, I'm warning you, if you follow me, I will lead you out of your life of sin into something you've always wanted. Just follow me. Just follow me. And that's the invitation for you today. Maybe you're not sure. Maybe you're here and you're one of those people who are like, I just don't know that I can believe. Would you follow me? But, but I, I, I'm involved in all this stuff and my life's a mess and I've made mistakes and you don't know what I did last night, Jim. Jesus would say, but just follow me. I'll lead you out of what you're in and I'll lead you to what you've always wanted. Would you just follow that's grace. Believe it or not, that's Christmas. We would never have known, we would have never been able to experience any of this if it wasn't for Jesus coming and saying, I'll do for you what you can't do for yourself. All truth, all grace, all the time. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this incredible message, God, for this incredible passage. It is so incredibly eye-opening, God, and convicting, and if I'm honest, Lord, a little bit unsettling to realize how powerful grace is, that it is offered to those, God, who don't deserve it, God, who can't earn it. I pray for each of us here, Lord, that we would experience your full grace. I pray that you would give us the courage to know what to do with what we heard this morning, God, to take that step. God, maybe to follow you for the very first time, or, or, or for those of us who have, God, to, to kind of take a step in that direction again, to follow you, away from our life of sin into the fullness that you provide. I pray you'd give us the courage and you'd give us the wisdom to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.